Hello, and welcome to episode one of Virgo and the Freak, a podcast, a podcast, sorry, that will cover the history, the present, the future, and maybe even make some solutions to issues about rugby league. I'm Andrew Ferguson. You can find me on Twitter at AndrewRLP, and joining me is the real reason you've tuned into this, League Freak, who you can catch on Twitter at League Freak. How is the kingiest king of rugby league today? Uh, kinging. It's, uh, it's been a good day so far. I've had my coffee, so I've got my personality on. And uh, hopefully um, it it shines through in the podcast. I've got my sleep deprivation on, which I, I do every day. So that helps me to be nice. as informative as possible somehow. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> now, um, today we're going straight into the deep end of the pool. We're going to look at International Rugby League and the World Cup especially and expansion, I guess. Um, yeah, so... Okay, I suppose I'll give you a quick rundown through the history there. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really... So, well, let's start from the beginning. From the very beginning. Yeah. All right. Um, the, the the expansion started rather tentatively and unintentionally, sort of, um, through a match in 1904 between England and another nationality side that was mostly uh, Wales players. And England lost that game 9-3. This basically saw rugby league in Wales take off. And it was... I think about three or four years after that on New Year's Day that they played their first international game and they defeated the touring New Zealand side 9-8. George Smith, who was in that Kiwi uh, touring side, was also a member of the 1905 All Black side that toured to the British Isles. He saw how popular the game was and went about setting it up in New Zealand. Two years after that tour, New Zealand started speaking, New Zealand rugby started speaking with Australian James Gilton and he was setting up rugby league in Australia. They organised three games between New Zealand and New South Wales, and these were the first professional games of rugby in Australia. They were played under rugby union rules because at that time no one in Australia knew how to play rugby league. Um, Australian rugby league kicked off the following year, 1908. Two years later, Secretary Edward Larkin suggested that the game should look to move into America. However, nothing came of it. In 1933, on New Year's Eve, Harry Sutherland took an exhibition game between Australia and England to Paris. And just three months after that, France had their own international side that toured to England for six games. And the following year, they made their first ever proposal for a World Cup competition. But sadly, it fell on deaf ears. It would be another 18 years before they were able to bring that conversation up again in 1952. And despite having a lot of barriers put up by mostly Australia about some of the difficulties about financing and travelling and whatnot, the, the tournament finally went ahead in 1954. Prior to that, France had been lobbying for the United States to be included in that World Cup, especially after they just had a tour to Australia and New Zealand. Uh, France even played a hastily organised game against America, which was just, which was just supposed to show that the Americans would be competitive. Unfortunately, France took the game seriously and won 31 0 and it pretty much was a death knell for America in the World Cup there. Um, the 1960s saw tentative attempts to introduce the game to South Africa and Italy, and there were still the odd occasional flirtations with America. We didn't get the next genuine uh, international side arrive until 1975 through Papua New Guinea. And within the decade after they came along, we had a whole heap of Pacific Islands starting to join uh, the international scene, like Western Samoa, Tonga, Cook Islands, Niue, and Tokelau. And by the mid-90s, the game was being introduced, born or reborn throughout Europe, Pacific, Asia, the Americas, and South Africa. And today, there's now over 70 countries playing rugby league. 
It's interesting with the with international rugby league in that that a lot of it was started when you would have an individual that would almost build, I guess what we'd call these days hype around themselves, and they would really draw in interest and be like, look, we want this to happen. And I mean, it happened with Daily Messenger in Australia when rugby league was established here as well, and with the the uh, All Golds. Um, and really, a lot of stuff happened pretty quickly, except for the World Cup, I guess. And uh, it's really interesting to think that there was a point where rugby league was all almost like the entrepreneurial sport, in that people take it take it up and say, like, we want this to go somewhere. I can see something in this sport that I don't see in other sports. And I mean, a lot of it was just the fact that it was professional rugby. Um, and there was a dollar that you could openly make out of it. So, it, but it's interesting to see how it was pushed, and that even going back like a hundred years, Australia was never really the one with its hands on the wheel. I mean, it seemed to be other countries that would push it, or individuals that would push it, and the Australian Rugby League authorities they really weren't the ones that were were trying to make it happen. They sort of just would would sort of like all right let's get this done it seems like it'll work um so yeah and, and that i think that still happens today you even look with the the world nines that we have it's not really the arl saying yeah we need a world nines we need to push this it's you know it's private enterprises saying look we can turn a dollar out of this and this is how much money we can make for you guys and that's how you get something like the auckland nines running it's it's interesting i find yeah look and it's there is a bit of a common theme there too, the whole the money side of things too, because especially for the the 1954 World Cup, a lot of Australia's um, concerns was that they'd be losing a lot of you know, potential gate income and money because 1954 was when the England Lions were due to tour uh, mm. Australia, and mm. they didn't want to lose that tour because of the amount of money it brought in through the gates, mm. because it was initially the France initially proposed that the tour be pl- the World Cup be played in around May of 1954. So that was going to clash with the, the uh, British Lions tour. Yeah. So and I mean, look, even still... in, in the last World Cup in Australia, they had the Emerging Nations World Cup was going to be played just before it. And very close to that competition, they spiked to the whole thing because they were worried about gates being affected by the Emerging Nations World Cup going into the World Cup. So, I mean, that, that stuff still happens today. Which yeah, is, the mindset is I mean, left. that was gross the way that happened. I, I was really pissed off when that happened. Especially given that I, when the Emerging Nations World Cup did happen at the end of last season, the the game here in Australia did very little to push it, really, mm. um, which was a bit disappointing because there were some pretty damn good games in those, in those contests. Yeah, and that, the nations that took part in it, they really built up to the original tournament they, they were really building towards it, and it looked like it was going to be something really special for the game that was going to be a great way to lead into the World Cup. And then when they, they sort of scrapped the tournament because they were worried about gate takings for the main World Cup, and the main World Cup, with the way they set it up, and I realised why they did it, they spread it around Australia a bit, but they also moved away from the the genuine supporter bases that they had, especially in, in Sydney with a lot of the... World Cup teams that had done well in 2008 and they moved away from those areas and the the gates weren't that good for the last World Cup, unfortunately. But um, it's always interesting to me that 
there's been worries from Australia about how much money was there to be lost. When Australia, without question, for the most part in rugby league history, could afford to lose more money than, in some cases, everyone else combined. And yet they're still, you know, wringing their hands about, well, we could lose money with this. Well, you've got these other nations that are like, we have no money to lose. This has to work. And we want it to happen. Um, so that's Australian Rugby League for you. Yeah, it's it's funny how, as you say, they do have the money. And to be honest, if they did spend a little bit, the the, the income would come down the line. You know, if they had to put a bit more passion and a bit more push into that Emerging Nations World Cup, you know, actually have it on TV instead of just being live-streamed on YouTube for starters. I mean, you don't know how much of an impact they could have had. You know, you could jack up advertising and stuff and get a few more dollars through TV rights deals and stuff, even though there may be games that, you know, a handful of people might only watch. Yeah, um, and something is always better than nothing. I always exactly. find it weird when they'll put on these games... Even with the PM's 13 game against PNG, and they'll be like, well, we, you know, we can't really afford to have a broadcaster up there. And it's like, hang on a second, you've got 17 of the best players in the world playing a nation, the only nation where rugby league is the number one sport, and you can't, you, you can't even make 50 grand out of sponsorship from this. Like, you can't make it work. It doesn't make sense to me. And there seems to have always been that thought from the Australian Rugby League authorities to most of the the international rugby league ideas outside of playing Great Britain for some reason. And Great, Great Britain tests traditionally and series, they traditionally drew big crowds. It's not the case as much anymore. But, uh, like, we're, I mean, we're a two-hour flight away from, from New Zealand. And even then, we really reluctantly set up test matches against New Zealand. I've, I've always found that infuriating. Yeah, I, the thing that infuriates me about the modern international game, as far as Australia's concerned, is the blank refusal to take part in series anymore. Mm. The one thing that was fantastic, you know, for, God, must be 80-odd years, was the Ashes series. Mm-hmm. And just just overnight, just scrap. We don't need to do that anymore. Um to me, yeah, that and was I, just madness. You know, so much of the game is about, you know, honouring traditions and stuff like that, especially mm. for old trophies and whatnot. And yeah. that one was just thrown to the wayside because England wanted to be their own team or, uh, you know, they didn't want to harm Ireland and Scotland and Wales. And mm-hmm. just think, uh, you've got to go look at the Rugby Union. The Lions tours come around, what, once every eight years? And mm. they are huge draw cards in the Rugby Union. They look forward to that as much, if not more so, than the World Cups because they're so rare they get such a huge following every time they actually come around. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is that if you look back through rugby league history, the markers in the history of the sport, they never used to be the the grand final winners in Australia. It always used to be, and then we played at the Test Series or then we our touring team went away. And that was such a major part of the fabric of the entire sport. And that's just been completely lost. Where now we're at a point where Australia tends to play test series as an afterthought for the most part. And I think some of that is is a media thing because the way that the it's all fractured with the media, if they're not able to make money out of it themselves, they sort of don't report on it. Whereas in the past, they were just reporting on the game and what was happening in the game. Um, but that whole thing of the entire year builds up to 
whatever test series we're playing or whatever tour we're on or who's touring here, that has been lost a long time ago. And that was almost gone um, when I was a kid. I mean, the last time we had a, a kangaroo tour was in 1994. And that was... That was the only one I really got to see and, and understand. And it was an interesting concept. I don't know that it would work as well now because I think the tastes of people have changed. Uh, but it's just they've gone completely gone. And I would love to see them return, not so much kangaroo tours, but just test series. I'd love to see them return. I would love to see Australia play three tests against France, for instance. Um, I, I think we miss those sorts of things. But because of the way the calendar's set out and the way that Australian Rugby League authorities are, and I think British Rugby League authorities as well, um, they could be playing three tests against France very easily. They could be playing games against Ireland and Scotland and Wales. And the big guns don't tend to want to play those games. New Zealand, quite honestly, is a little bit useless. They sort of will take any scraps they can get. And we don't have too many test series anymore, which is really unfortunate. And we, I would love to see the calendar change so that we could at least bring them back every few years where we've got a year where everyone's on tour or everyone's having a test series because we just don't have that anymore. Yeah, I, I think um, tours have definitely got um, a purpose now, a bit of a different purpose. So in the past, it was always playing, you know, pretty much all of the the teams that are currently in the game or a few rep sides from around the bush and stuff like that. Mm. But I think now if you were to do a kangaroo tour, you wouldn't be playing Hull FC and no. you know, Yorkshire stuff like that. You'd be going around, you'd just be playing Hollywood Internationals. You know, you'd yep. go around and play the three tests against Great Britain, two tests against France perhaps, um, mm. one against Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Then go mm. around, play one or two games in Europe, just some some random teams every every four years, like Serbia, Lebanon, Italy. Yep. You know, pick some of those. Maybe even do a quick stop over at Germany, play a game there, zip across, play play a game or two in Canada and USA, come back down through the Pacific Islands, play through there, one or two at Papua New Guinea. It doesn't have to be, you know, like the old tours where there's thirty odd games being played in the space of about three or four months. Mm. Just go and play two internationals. Um, you know, play play the three Test series against Great Britain over three weekends. Every other Every other international you've got there, you could probably play two a week, one on a Wednesday, one on a Saturday, something like that, mm-hmm. because you'd be taking enough players to fill two teams. Yeah, and, and, and name, I mean, they used to be called the Emus, the, the midweek teams. Mm. Uh, I don't think that was ever official, but that's kind of what they called themselves. Nah, it was unofficial, yeah. Yeah, and, and do that. Like, I don't think anyone would have any problems if you had the Australian Test team, which had all of your stars in it, but then for uh, for games against, say, a Germany or something, you had a team that you ran out and it's like, well, it's not the full Australian test team, but it's the Emus team. You know, it's the it's almost the second grade side where you might yeah. rest your stars. I don't think anyone would have too many problems with that. Um, and, and they just, there's no thought. There's not even a hint of a thought of that happening at the moment. And I find that really unfortunate because... I think that in Australia, you could probably put together a second team that, that you could call an Emus team. Just call them whatever you want. Call them the Wallabies. Hey, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> but uh, yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, I'd love that. But uh, call them whatever you want. 
where the players would love to tour and they might not be your, your superstars, but kind of like the PNG uh, team that the PNG side that we have at the end of the year where it's the PMs 13, they all really love going and playing those games, those players, and they get a lot out of it. And you see a lot of those players go into the test side. Eventually. I think that there would be a group of players that would love to do that. And then playing against, emerging nations would really help lift those standards because these emerging nations only get to see like what it's like to play a top test nation every four years if they're lucky if they're in the main world cup and they need to see what the standard is even if it's not against the elite test side just to see see what the fitness standards are or the style of game or the little things that i always think that experiencing a game is way better than just watching it from the sideline. And that's why I always used to not like when you'd see uh, Australians and Kiwis and Poms going to a lot of these other nations where they'd say, oh, well, they're giving experience to the younger players that in the side. And it's like, no, you get experience by actually experiencing something, not by watching some old Aussie run around in your jersey. Exactly. So I, I, I really would love to see something like that. But that takes a coordinated effort from the administrators. And there just seems to be no coordination at all. It seems to be just thrown together and you, you get one person pushing something here or there but where the rubber meets the road and emerging nations really need experience, there's not even a thought of giving them experience. And that's always pissed me off as well. There's a lot of things about international rugby league that pisses me off. And it tends to be the inaction part of, of things. Yeah. The inaction is a big thing and you know, you've hit the nail on head. They need that experience and it needs to be at you know, the current system that they've got at the moment. Well, they've had in the past is that, Teams of equal levels are constantly playing each other. The problem with that is they stay at that constant level. Yeah. There's no chance for them to move up because they don't know what they need to do to go to the next level up because they're not given that opportunity to. Mm. So you just everyone just stays where they are. It's all very stagnant. And I think there's there's got to be a way that's... It doesn't have to be Australia as well. I'd like to see Australia, England, New Zealand, even France... Um, they've all got different styles. They've all got different fitness and professionalism levels. They should all be doing these tours. You know, one one does it one year and one another year, so on and so forth. And you have four or five of these countries going around. That means that Australia's only got to do one of these tours once every maybe six or seven years. So it yeah. doesn't become a huge financial burden. It doesn't become a huge burden on the players because obviously you get that talk about player burnout and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... I think there's no reason why it can't happen, and mm. the benefits far outweigh the the negatives by 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 a long, long way. It's not even com- in comparison, to be honest. And yeah. to be honest, if players were saying that they didn't want to go because of fear of player burnout, whatever it is, mm. I'm sure you would be able to find plenty of players sitting there waiting in the wings who would be champing at the bit to say, "Okay, I'll take their spot." If Cameron Smith doesn't want to play for Australia, <laughs> exactly, hell, I'll take his job. Exactly. Remember when Danny Badira sat out one year just because he, he'd had a, and, and to be fair, he played a lot of footy. He sat out one year and he never got his jersey back. And the guy that took his place is Cameron Smith, you know, and he held on to it for like a decade. Uh, I, I And I also think that what people want to see is different to what it used to be. I mean, obviously, Australia and Great Britain, they get 
big ratings just because they're the big rugby league playing nations. But I think, and I've always been like this, I have always been interested to see the smaller or smaller or emerging nations play. Like, you watch the way PNG plays the game, it's completely different to everyone else. And France, for the most part, has always been like that. I mean, I've always said that if you want to see how rugby league is meant to be played, go and watch France play because they play this beautiful style of rugby league. It's it's absolutely incredible to watch. And right now, I mean, if somebody said, well, what would be a four-nation series that you'd love to see? It would be Samoa, Tonga, PNG, and, you know, probably Fiji as well. I would love to see that series every year. I'm sick of seeing Australia play the same old teams and Great Britain playing the same old teams. I took very little to no interest in New Zealand playing England last year. I just didn't care how many times are we going to see the same series over and over again. And I understand why they needed to play those games because they're both working towards the World Cup. I don't know that New Zealand gets too much out of those uh, series against where they go over to play England. I, I think it has little bearing on what we eventually see from them when there's a big, a really big tournament that that's really important. But uh, yeah, the, it's the emerging nations to me that have always been interesting. Seeing the United States play the game, I love seeing them play. Um, I would love to see how well Canada plays. Uh, and we just don't see those things. And that's why I would have the World Cup every three years, because you really only get to see those nations in the World Cup, and they really only get an exposure to the top nations in the World Cup. And I think that if we played the World Cup every three years, we would just get more of those varied games against varied nations. And I think that's what rugby league needs right now. It doesn't need the same old thing tossed up. It needs something different, and I think that the World Cup gives us that. Yeah, I think every three years, too, would be absolutely spot on, and I'd even expand it to have more teams in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's it, there's always this fear with World Cups, though, that they want it to look like it's the best World Cup out there by having close games, because as mm-hmm. you see often in the Rugby Union one, you'll get massive blowout scores in yeah. the stage matches. You know what? Teams need to go through that if they're going to learn what it takes to get better. Um, And being on the big stage and being in front of TV and having all that sponsorship and being on that world stage like that, that's actually probably more important than the result itself for a lot of these teams. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we should be getting them out there. And I think if we have this, this system where it's pretty much the same, the same 10 to 12 teams are constantly in the World Cup and you've only got, you know, close to 60 nations fighting out for the last two spots, you're not going to get much diversity in the World Cup and it's not going to change much. And the problem when you get stagnant with things is people start to lose interest. Yeah. Um, you can see that just in the, without going off topic for too much, but you can see it in the Super League with the fact they've had, you know, four premiers since the mid nineties, you know, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. game's not growing. It's not expanding there because it's getting a bit dull and boring and repetitive. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas in the NRL, things keep growing because the Salary Cup works well and we've got different premiers all the time. The yeah. same thing needs to be thought of in, in the World Cup and, and in International Rugby League. We need to keep mixing things up. We need to have Australia playing games against Serbias and Canadas and stuff like that because mm. we want the variety. A lot of a lot of the great glamour and, and joy international football up to the 80s and 90s was whenever we played against New Zealand or England, 
most of the Australians didn't know who was in the opposition team. So we didn't know what mm-hmm. to expect. And mm-hmm. so people went out of in- intrigue and interest. They were genuinely intrigued to see what would happen. You know, who are these English players? What are they going to do? We've only read stuff about them. We haven't seen them. Yeah. Whereas now we see the New Zealand team every week in the NRL. We see, well, now nearly half the English team every week in the NRL. So when we play against them, well, there's still that bit of, you know, it's an international, it's something really important. At the same time, you're going, yeah, we kind of know all these players, though. And so we've got a bit yeah. of a rough idea as to how the result's going to go. Yeah, so, I think that that plays into the eligibility rules, too, because with the familiarity of these players that we're now seeing, you need to make sure that you keep the sanctity of what a test nation is supposed to be or what an international team is supposed to be. And I think if you looked at some of these players and you were like, well, that's that person plays for England or that person plays for Tonga and, and that's just how it is, it would be different than a lot of times what we see is, well, this, this bloke, he, he was born in New Zealand and he's played for New South Wales and he played for New Zealand for a bit, but then he played for Australia and then he decided to go back. And it doesn't do any justice to what international rugby league should be. And it turns international rugby league from being a contest between nations to just being a logo on a jersey. And that's something that I don't like either. And and I think that we need to fix the eligibility rules in that regard so that we do keep a value in international football because I don't think anyone wants to see you know, uh, Club Australia playing Club New Zealand, where you have to recruit players almost. No one wants to see that. That's not international footy. Uh, You want to see people from different nations playing. And and that's one of the reasons that PNG is so good to see, because it really is a bunch of blokes from Papua New Guinea playing their style of footy. And it's, it's successful, but it's different. It's different to what we have here. And you don't know many of the players. You'll you'll hear some names and you'll recognise them and stuff. But when you watch a World Cup and PNG are playing, it's cool to see those players that you're like, wow, this guy's really good. This guy runs hard every single time. Um, and that's part of the joy of watching an international contest in rugby league. And as you say, we miss that with some of the major nations. And you get get that with some of the emerging nations. I mean, you look at the 2000 World Cup and look through some of the um, Tonga and Samoa and, and and places like that. Look at some of the names who were nobodies in those teams who ended up being stars, but unfortunately they got drafted in to the main teams. And it really, I think that that sort of stuff holds back international footy. And the funny thing is, then you get to a point where Australia sort of says, well, who else is there to play? And it's like, well, you could have been playing uh, an absolutely amazing Fijian team for the last 10 years, but you kept on taking all their best players. Yeah, I I really, really hate that. I mean, mm. Australia undoubtedly is the pinnacle of rugby league in the world. There's no doubt about that. There's yeah. no need for this country to be going around taking players that are eligible for other nations. We don't need them. No. We don't need them in our national side. We've got enough players to cover that. And if we've got enough constant international games being played by those other nations, those, you know, all the Pacific nations for a good example, um, if they're playing frequently enough, 
those players are going to be tempted to go play for them, like Andrew Fafita is and Will Hopewadi and the like. You know, mm-hmm. you that's what you want. You want them playing for those nations because the more players who generally qualify for those nations actually go and play for them, the better international rugby league gets, and that's that should be the ultimate goal. I don't want to see um, New Zealand or Australia trying to poach Islander players anymore because they just don't need them, and it ruins everything, and it does nothing for Australian Rugby League or New Zealand Rugby League because they're at the top already, and they're going to stay there whether they've got those blokes in the side or not. Mm-hmm. So why not help out the rest of the world and do that? If you're not going to go tour around and play the, play Fiji's and Tongas and stuff on a regular basis on their home soil, then... Don't go poaching their players. Let them have their players. Yeah. You know, it's just... Uh, I really hate it. It is so... It is so damaging to the game. It doesn't help the game go forward in any way whatsoever. No. And and they say that... Like... You know, they talk about getting experience. And you look at the just the Fijian players that have played for Australia. I mean, uh, Sivanasiva, Takiri, Radradra. And you get players from some of these nations that they'll only play one or two tests for Australia. But with the way that we changed our eligibility rules for state of origin and and changed them back and, you know, who knows what they are right now, you get to a point where a player basically has to commit to playing state of origin. And to be fair, this is a professional sport and they look at how much money they can make out of a three-game series in State of Origin and how much you can earn from endorsements. And if you can play State of Origin for even five years, you're making a lot of money. And so I understand why the players do it. But there's no need for us as a nation to be saying, well, we need these players. We really are desperate to have these players. We're not. Even if you've got an elite talent from, say, Tong, I mean, you look at Taumalolo. If you say, well, it'd be great for New Zealand to have Taumalolo, yeah, it would be fantastic for them. But New Zealand can maybe name a player that is 85% as good as Taumalolo is. And I consider him to be the best player in the world right now. They don't need him. They're not desperate for him. They can name someone. The days of New Zealand naming, you know, the guy off the street down the road that plays really good in the local competition are gone. You know, we don't need those players anymore. And we should be saying, get those players to the nations that need them and give them games. And I I think we're going to see that more and more with Tonga in particular because they're so good. Uh, But we need that with PNG. We need that with Fiji and Samoa. And we need it to happen regularly. Uh, the one-off games are good, but we can do better with that. Yeah, you, you can obviously say the one-off games for the the, the smaller nations, um, but I think we can both agree that they, they all need to be playing more often, you know, because you see a lot of these nations too, they start up so quickly and, mm. you know, they're like bullet a gate. They play so many games all up, but then if there's no one helping to keep that momentum going and it stops mm-hmm. for a little bit, everything comes crashing to a halt. Um, yeah, and they hit a wall too. They get to a point where they they can play a certain level of competition, but it's almost like they knock at the door, knock at the door, and, and they can do that for like 20 years and never get a hint of playing somebody at the next level. Uh, and that's that stops development. The other thing you see too is you'll see a nation such as, and I'll use Italy as an example, 
Um, they will push to play games and, and then they finally get to a World Cup and all of a sudden every Australian just happens to be Italian. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck is going on? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me and it it's disgusting to me when I see some of these teams get into World Cups and all of the players that got them there, they get brushed aside for players that were born in Sydney. And it's like, oh yeah, I'm Italian. You know, it's like, can you can you even, you know, sing the national anthem? It, it I don't like that. And that's when people say, oh, well, they're giving these players experience. And it's like, no, those players are sitting at home watching these, these guys now who are just taking their place, getting a jersey, having a good tour. I understand why the Australians do it. But it does nothing at all for the international game. Nothing. No, it's a horrible situation. I can see both sides of it, but neither justifies the other. You know, the the reason why they all jump in there is because, for a lot of the reasons, the Australian guys see there's an opportunity to play in a World Cup knowing that they can't play for Australia. Yeah. Um, and it gets allowed because that immediately means that the those teams will actually be probably stronger because of the yeah. better experienced players that are in there. So... The organisers will be looking at going, well, this is going to mean that, you know, teams like Italy are not going to be walked over by Australia and France and stuff like that. They're going to be competitive and they'll probably even win a few games, mm. which on paper sounds like a great idea because then you're going to see Italy possibly playing in the quarterfinals like we had in, was it 2013? We had the USA in the, in the finals. Mm. But at the same time, it's completely... It's completely disrespecting the people who got them there because none of yeah. these blokes born in Sydney or in England and whatnot were part of that process. And if they were, they're only there for one or two games that were important. Um, so it's it's kind of like you you falsely put the team up there. And as soon as the World Cup's over, all of those players who play for, you know, all those nations in the World Cup, they merely go and disperse and go and play for Australia, England, New Zealand, whatever. And all those guys who got them there and didn't get that opportunity to play in a World Cup, are the ones that are first called up and then they've got to get them back up to there again and, and get them back into competition again. It's a bad system that rewards the wrong people. Yeah, and that, look, that happened with the United States. I, th I think it was that tournament you were speaking of where they really fought hard to qualify for the World Cup. And I remember at the time the players, I mean, it was a, a United States team. It was, uh, for the most part, born and bred in the United States. And then they get to the World Cup and basically all of those players were tossed aside for blow-ins. And I remember the blow-up that was happening um, from the community over there. They were like, "What? what's going on? We, we qualified and now our national team is basically being bastardised so that it looks better to the world. But this isn't us. This isn't our representative team. And it was a bit of a blow to the community there because they really had ownership and they had so much pride in making the World Cup. And then it was almost that the rug was pulled out from under them. And look, that United States team did better than most expected. But it wasn't it wasn't a good thing at the end of the day because, you know, you, you look at these players that they play, and I've written about this on my website before, they love the game as much as anyone else. And they play this weird sport that none of their friends know about. They, you know, they buy the gear, they watch the games from overseas. And if they're good enough to play for their nation, they have as much pride as an Australian player does or a Kiwi player does. 
and they'll go out and they'll play these emerging nations tournaments or, or these qualification matches. And they are as much a, an international as any other player in the world. And they love what they do. And it is, it is their, their jersey. They really, really love this thing. And then when it comes time to maybe play in the World Cup and their family and friends are so excited about it and like they don't really know much about this sport, but they know that their friend could be playing in a World Cup. And then some guy from Sydney comes in and just takes their spot. And, you know, what happens then? Then they're watching on TV at home and it must be absolutely devastating. Uh, we need to stop that. We need to have better eligibility rules in place. And we need to stop this nation hopping crap because it really hurts the game and its expansion at the very foundation of the sport. Uh, it, it, we can't have that anymore. If we really want to expand this sport, we can't have this nation swapping thing. It, it just can't go on because the people that love the game and that truly go out of their way to play the game, they're the ones that get hurt at the end of the day. And that can only happen so many times to where a player starts thinking to themselves, well, I can't put any more effort into this. Or they start thinking, well, what else are the alternatives? I've got the skill set to go and play rugby union. I might do that instead. Yeah, it's it's a very good argument for putting forward an idea of when it comes to eligibility of pick and stick. And mm. if you want to play for Italy in a World Cup, then... Mr. Tedesco, you've got to pick it, and you've got to stay with them until you retire from rugby league. Yeah. Um, if is if we had a system like that, then at least at least Tedesco is in there playing games against Serbia and Austria and whoever else, and mm -hmm. he's earned his right for that place in that side in the World Cup. Yeah. You know, and that means that he's also playing in the NRL as an ambassador for that side. That's better. Yeah, but yeah. just being picked. I mean, obviously he's the best bloody fullback in the world, probably. Mm -hmm. um, so if he comes along and says to, to Italy, "I want to play for you because I couldn't get in the Australian side," of course they're going to say yes. Yeah. But the poor bugger who was there before him, he's just the one who's just thrown out the you know, mate, we don't need you. You just go sit at home and watch. You know, thanks for your efforts. Here's a card. You know, we yeah. need to have that pick and stick thing in there, and you pick a side, you stick with the material tie. There's no code hopping. The only way you can only sorry no country hopping and the only way you can do that change countries is mm -hmm. I think you have to become a citizen of that country and denounce mm -hmm. your citizenship of the other one. Make yeah. it stupidly impossible and make them make that decision straight up front. Who do you want to represent? Yeah, and go and from they, there. They tried to bring in a thing, and they might have scrapped it. They tried to bring in a thing a few years ago where they said to younger players, like, you've got to nominate the nation that you want to play for and the state you want to play for. And, I mean, that stuff never holds up, it, you know, at the end of the day. If Queensland or New South Wales wants a player and they're playing well enough, they'll try and find a way to get them into the side, which is, is gross and needs to change, in my opinion. But when you – like, the, the nation hopping thing is really devastating because – if there are World Cups where literally you can say, well, that star player is fantastic, and they'll they'll read out their achievements and they'll say, well, he played for Scotland in the last World Cup and now he's playing for England in this one, and it just makes a mockery of the whole situation. I think that if players 
picked a nation and they stuck with them, there wouldn't be as much of a problem. Uh, but the the nation hopping is, in my opinion, it's devastating to the the credibility of the international game, and it's really easy to mock. And the thing that we need to remember is. As rugby league diehards, if we think that it's ridiculous and we're mocking it, try selling that to somebody that is just being introduced to international rugby league. Try sitting down with somebody that is watching their first rugby league World Cup and when it comes up on the screen that this player played for New Zealand at the last World Cup and now they're playing for Tonga, explain that to them without their eyes glazing over and just writing the whole thing off. It's really, really difficult. Um... We need to change that rule in particular. And I've said before the, the same thing you did, where if you want to change nations, you get become a naturalised citizen of that nation. I don't think we'd have any problems with that. I think that would definitely play into Australia's hands, unfortunately, because of the financial incentives of playing state of origin and playing for Australia. But then that allows Australia to set in place a higher standard for itself where we might, and I've been a big advocate of saying that New South Wales and Queensland, it should purely be based upon you play for the the state you were born in. And if beyond that, you end up, and the, the argument against that is people say, well, Peter Sterling would have played for Queensland and Sam Thiday, he was born in, in Melbourne, so he wouldn't have played for anyone. And what happens with someone like Hazmil Masri that was born overseas? I think everything would be fine. I don't think the game would stop being played anywhere because those players had to watch State of Origin being played. But I think that what you would get down the road would be something way better. And if Australia just said, look, we're only, we're only picking players that were born in Australia from now on, and we're only going to select our state teams based on where you were born from now on, I don't think you would have then a problem of, say, someone from Fiji coming to Australia and becoming a naturalised Australian citizen simply because they can play state of origin. And so that's why I always have said it's up to Australia to lead the way on these sorts of things because unless we're leading the way and we're holding ourselves to the absolute extreme highest limit at highest level everyone else doesn't need to do that either um and and it it really starts with australia and and we need to lead the way no fully agree with you mate on every single point there um yeah eligibility is something that is it started out as a distraction and now it's becoming a, a, a genuine issue as you said, not just at at international level, but also things like origin as well. And it's, it it takes it takes attention away from the game and turns it onto a part which can be used to mock the game. And yeah. it's something that we really should cramp down and fix really fast, so that we can get back to just having eyes on the game, talking mm. about the game instead of looking for things to nitpick at on the side, like eligibility, um, because it has got has got ridiculous and it is as you said it's everywhere so mm. yeah australia needs to lead the way i'd also like to see the uh rlif step in and say okay this is now what the eligibility criteria is going to be for everyone yeah um i, I must admit the rlif have looked to be a lot more proactive and um forthright with a lot of things they've done in the last year or so um because the biggest problem they're always going to have is standing up to australia more than anyone yeah. 
And yeah. they look to be starting to do that. Remember the debate that they had last year when um, Australia put out their idea of what the international uh, calendar was going to be looking for them for the next one or two years or so. And the RLF yeah. come out and said, nope, that's not what we're going to do. This is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. When finally, that's mm-hmm. what we need. We need the top, the top organising um, head in this whole game to be the RLIF, not the NRL, not the yeah. ARL. Yeah. And when, when we finally get that, then things will start to work. We can then start having proper tournaments. We're going to start having games organized the right way around. We can then start having money dispersed to the right areas as it should be instead of being hoarded by one of two countries and games only being played so that they can get the money. You know, We need to start mm-hmm. looking at increasing that, that wealth across yeah. the whole nation and keep growing it. And not just growing it, but also making sure these uh, emerging nations don't fold. Yeah, and, and give them support when they need it. Like there's so many emerging nations out there that have had no support at all. And it's it's an absolute miracle that the game continues to grow in some of these places. Um, I mean, I dare say that if you went to the people that run rugby league in Germany and you said to them, how many times has an Australian official, you know, talked to you guys or offered support, they'd probably laugh their asses off. And that would be the case amongst most of like most of the nations you know um and that can't be the case and it's really weird that australia doesn't do that because the people the the nation that would get the most out of having more opponents would be australia and if we if australia was able to say look we've got an off season where we play one game against tonga one game against new zealand one game against fiji and you don't know who's going to win any of those games, no one would make more money than Australia. And it's really weird that they just don't get on the front foot with a lot of those things. And you see that a little bit with the Rugby Football League as well. They don't tend to do a great deal, even for um, the home nations like Scotland and, and Wales and Ireland. And we've actually seen them do some things that have been really devastating I mean, I'm pretty sure there was one year where Scotland was, or the Scottish team, they weren't really Scottish, were doing all right in the World Cup. And as soon as the Scottish team, it was like they got knocked out of the World Cup. And I think it was like two days later, the Rugby Football League slashed their funding and everyone blew up about that. But there was nothing that really could be done. What we need to have is nations standing on their own two feet politically, almost in a sense, and... Because looking to Australia and and England to lead the way and try and support everyone, it it just hasn't been working in the past. We need to diffuse the responsibility and and really allow nations like France to have a say and and like Fiji and, and Papua New Guinea to have a say. Because if it's left up to just one or two nations, you get a, a, a situation, and this has happened a number of times, where there's a big announcement. It's like, this is going to be the International Rugby League calendar. And it ends up being just what Australia and New Zealand and England are going to be doing. And all of the other nations in the world are like, well, what what about us? What are we supposed to be doing for the next four years? We can't have that situation going forward. And, you know, the, the International Rugby League Federation for a long time, and I joked about it, was just a letterhead. It was just a letterhead that was sent out from either Australia or England and uh, sometimes it was bypassed through New Zealand. 
it can't be that anymore. It has to be a real organization. And it looks like it might be heading in that direction. I haven't got, I, I, I don't have any faith in a lot of these things because I've seen so many failures in the path, but it tends to look like it might be heading in a good direction. So let's hope it keeps heading in that direction and that it doesn't just get taken over again and, and just become a letterhead like it has been in the past. I agree. And from what I've seen so far, they look to have a much better um, organisational structure there as well with plenty of people who know what's going on there, whereas before it just looked like it was made up of, I think, the heads of each league, each test-playing nation around the world. So mm. it was always going to be biased towards those nations, whereas now yeah. it's a bit more um, it's a bit more intelligently assembled now, yeah. which is good to see. Um, yeah, so I think the big decision they've got coming up now is... The the World Cup that was supposed to be played in the USA looks like it yeah. may not be going ahead. Yeah. Um, and so I don't understand why it would be either because, and it's nothing to do with United, the Rugby League in the United States, who I tend to think maybe all of this stuff is happening at a distance from them. I think that it's, I mean, obviously it was run by an, a, a promotions company, really yeah. backed, backed it and things like that. And, but they were they were promised a lot of things, a, a lot of games. And, I mean, how many games? Australia was going to play Tonga. There was going to be a round of NRL games that were played over there. All sorts of things were promised. And the one thing that happened was that ridiculous test between England and New Zealand mid-season in, in Denver, which really, I mean, it, it was promoted a little bit in terms of wanting to make a bit of money out of it, but you could tell the the impetus to really get behind that concept just wasn't there at all. Um, and and so I can understand why there's not going to be a World or if there's not going to be a World Cup in the United States, because where's the groundwork that's been laid from nations such as Australia um, to really support the concept and, and get games played over there leading up to it and as I said, it, it, it seems like that whole idea is really disconnected from the actual rugby league community over there, which is a people don't understand. It's a real community. They've got their own culture over there. They love the game over there. They play games over there. They've been through a Super League war over there that no one really in most of the other nations know about. And they've done really well to keep the competition going over there, but they just get no support at all. And it's funny because anytime people talk about rugby league in the United States, there's there for some reason there's a real disconnect from rugby league in the United States. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a shame because I think the two places we really should be looking at having a World Cup very soon would be US Canada uh, area. I'd love yep. nothing more than to see a World Cup played over there. Another one needs to be almost entirely played in uh, France because yeah. too often we've we've had World Cups um, where games were played in France, but the rest of it was sort of played in and around England. And let's be honest, Australia and England don't need to have a World Cup every, uh-huh. every, you know, every second or third World Cup doesn't need to be in Australia and England. They need to start sharing them around and really the, the beauty of the World Cup, especially if we were to have one every three years, you could just park one in one country somewhere and just have yeah. the whole nation focused on that one massive world event. Mm. Nothing would be better for the game in those countries than to do that. You could have one in the middle of Europe somewhere and just get all of those nations you know, hosted in Germany, perhaps. Mm. All those European nations could all come to Germany and play international rugby league there. 
that sounds mad, but that's that's the thing that would work. And rugby league's got a history of trying the mad thing out every now and then, see what would happen. I mean, they were the first ones to bring out the the rugby, you know, World Cup in rugby. Yeah, let's let's get that let's get those balls back and start having a crack at something a bit different instead of just playing it safe all the bloody time. Yeah, and and as you say, like. Can you imagine what it would do for French Rugby League having an entire mm. World Cup in France? It would be absolutely unbelievable for them, especially if you used it as an opportunity to educate people about the history of French Rugby League and and what happened with having their assets seized and taken away. And, I mean, the fact that Rugby League even exists in France is some sort of miracle and shows the love for the game that the French people have. Um, I think it's hilarious that... We have never even thought about having a full World Cup just played in New Zealand. Like, it would do massive things for New Zealand if we had the whole nation taken over and and played a whole Rugby League World Cup there. Playing a World Cup, as you say, in the United States and Canada where... and, And get away from the idea of we need to play in NFL stadiums, which are not well suited to playing Rugby League at. I would be looking at the soccer... Uh, the soccer stadiums, you know, no, yeah, the MS, MLS stadiums and, and things like that. That's what we need to do. We need to make the World Cup an event that is exciting to go and see. Not so, not like it's some exhibition where you, you're watching, you know, a game where it's 15,000 people in a 70,000-seat stadium. Take it to a 25,000-seat stadium and have a really good atmosphere because the players always respond to that sort of thing. And we see that from time to time in the World Cup. I mean, we saw that in the last World Cup with Tonga when they were playing in packed stadiums and and everyone lifted from that. And they were really the headline act in the last World Cup. But as you say, I mean, the 2008 World Cup in Australia was exciting because we hadn't had a World Cup in Australia for a long, long time. People went out, they they really embraced the games. They wanted to see something different. And then the last World Cup, it was like, oh, yeah, the World Cup, you know, I might go and see some games. And the, you could see from the lower attendances, and I think the lower excitement rate, and now they're taking the World Cup back to England, and it's like, we've got to do something different with this. We've got to have some excitement with it. The next World Cup would be so much more exciting if it was just in France, instead of being in England, and I'm I'm not saying that England doesn't deserve to see International Rugby League, but it doesn't mean that they are any more deserving of other nations to see International Rugby League. And France would be fantastic. Having a World Cup in France would be, I mean, it would be really exciting. I would love to see that, but good luck when, I mean, it's not even being talked about. Yeah, well, there is, there was some suggestions that they may, they may take over the the US one that that looks like it may have failed, but mm. you just know that it won't be played entirely in France. It'll be no. split between France and England, and we've we've got to stop doing that because it, it does water them down. Um, you know that last one we had here, and you know, they were playing games in regional regional centres and around some of the islands. Just it's it's a half-assed approach that needs to end. We've got to stop doing things in that measure because it shows zero commitment, and if there's zero commitment being shown by the game, then you're going to get the same response from the fans and the players. Yeah. No one wins that situation. So I think if it, if it does go to France and, and they want to have it go to another country, take games to Spain, you know? Yeah. yeah they're trying to do that push into to Catalonia and stuff like that. Play mm-hmm. a few games there if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. Try somewhere new. Don't try somewhere where the game's already established. We should be thinking about 
growing and expanding the game and getting more eyes on it, more sponsors looking at it, that sort of thing. Not the same the same eyes all the time and the same sponsors all the time. You're not going to grow. You're just looking to that audience. And that should be the primary primary objective is how can we grow it, get more sponsors in, get more fans into it, get that game growing, get the talk about it growing. You know, that should be the priority. Yeah, 100%. And, and you get excitement by trying something new from time to time as well or trying something that hasn't been done for a long while. And like I look at the the Nines World Cup that we're having at the end of the year, I'm really excited for that. I can't wait to to go to that. And they're going to play it at Parramatta's new stadium, which will be just the perfect place for it. Uh, but I would, I mean, it would be even better if they had that Nines World Cup and it was you play for the country you were born in, because then it would almost be like an origin style competition. And you would see different players from different nations. And there might be, I mean, Fiji would be just unbelievable in a competition like that. They're going to be unbelievable anyway. But it would be really interesting to see how these nations lined up if you did that. We need to try these new things and and go to these new places and show what rugby league has to offer. And don't don't fall into the trap of going to a hundred thousand seat stadium and putting on these these games. Go to somewhere where you're going to do something real. You're going to make a real impact, and you're going to show how good rugby league can be in a packed stadium where it's a really good atmosphere and you've got these two teams ripping in. And you know we've got so much we can offer. I mean, just the Australian team going somewhere and. You know, this is these are the kangaroos. This is Australia's national team, and they've always been good at rugby league, and now they're taking on France in France. It would be incredible, and we don't do it enough, and I don't understand why. I understand that you've got to be able to make a really good business plan, and you can't lose money on everything, but it seems as though there's not that drive to even try and make a business plan unless a, a third party comes in and says, look, I can do this. I can make this much money and let's see what happens. You've got to try that from time to time. You can't aim too high, but you also have to have a dig and have a go at things from time to time. And uh, there's not that push there and it's it's frustrating. Yeah, look, and I think for me, yeah, obviously as an historian, the thing that's frustrating about that is the game is born on taking a risk. Yeah. A massive risk possibly the most immense risk that athletes could have made at the time. Yeah. And now all it does is play it safe. Yeah. And it took all those risks in those, in those early years for quite a long time. And the game has gone stronger. Yeah. So obviously the game is good at taking risks and it's very good at responding to, you know, if the risks don't work out and it doesn't fail, the game doesn't fall apart and destroy itself. It still keeps going on. And that will be the case. So they need to start being a bit more bold with their decisions. So this Nines uh, World Cup they're bringing in, I'd be more in... My biggest disappointment is there's not enough teams in it because yeah. you can play a lot of Nines games. Instead yeah. of playing it over just one weekend, why not have it over two whole bloody weeks or something like that and yeah. bring in all 50 of the international teams that are currently on the world rankings list. Just mm. bring them all in. Just say, yeah. you know what, let's all just have... A whole heap of groups. Everyone plays like two or three games in that group. So you're not playing each other, obviously. Mm -hmm. But you get so many games being played over such a long period. All the countries are getting recognition in Australia on TV. Yeah. How fantastic would that be? Instead, we're going to get 
you know, just a different version of what we've got with the World Cup teams. And yeah. while it's going to be fascinating, fascinating to watch, and I'm definitely going to tune in and watch because, you know, nines is very exciting. It's just mm-hmm. a ramped up version of, of what rugby league is really. It's a lot faster, yeah. a lot more rampant. It's going to be fantastic to watch. But I'd like to see a lot more variety on there. I mean, imagine if you get to watch, say, Turkey playing Philippines in one of the class, you know, one of the games there. And you don't know any of the players in those sides yeah. or what their styles are. And you're going to watch that and just get blown away by the the variance in styles of the two teams. You know, that'd be a fantastic thing to see. I'd love to see that. But, yeah, maybe down the line. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, part, look, part of me thinks that the... And, and it wasn't a failure. It did pretty well. But part of the thing that the Auckland Nines didn't really capture people, in my opinion, was that it was the same old teams. And they had a... I think the original proposal was to have international teams involved, like the old World Nines. And basically that was spiked so that it was just the closed shop for the NRL. And I can see where you can make some business decisions based on that. But... I think that it really took a lot away from the competition because it would have been really cool to have seen some uh, Pacific Island nations involved in that instead of the same old 16 team competition that we're going to be, we've watched, you know, for forever. Uh, I I think that that really hurt that. And so that's why the the world cup or the nines world cup, whatever they're calling it, um, That'll be really interesting to see that play just because it should be what I think the Auckland Nine should have been. Yeah, it's for me, you you need to start looking. You know, nines are essentially an exhibition thing. So you need to look at ways that you can mix up what you currently got all the time and do things a bit differently other than just changing the rules. So yeah, yeah, I'm the same. I would have liked to have seen a return to those old World Sevens and World Nines things, and you had, you know, one or two English champion rugby league teams and some of the test nations you just have just just send an invitation out to the world and say if you can get get nine blokes together come around and have a have a crack you know yeah. like what about if and and I wrote about this before I've written about a lot of things to do with rugby league um <laughs> haven't we the, all? you could have an invitational side where you said okay we've got we've got this team and it's just for rugby union players. And they'd have to be off contract for the most part because otherwise they wouldn't be allowed to play in the, the competition. But can you imagine what it would be like to have an invitational team that was just rugby union players? See how they play. Uh, you could do literally anything you wanted to do. You could even do it with, um, you know, you could have a team that, that was invitational for the United States, maybe uh, gridiron players. And just see how they go. They'd be terrible. They'd be absolutely terrible. Well, but I'd want to see they, how they go. They wouldn't be as bad as the English snookers players team. <laughs> oh yeah, you know. Or the, can you imagine the English darts team? Jesus, <laughs> wow. <Your> props. Ah, <laughs> uh, that half of them would die. <laughs> oh, that 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 could take you into another. You just have one pool full of teams from other sports. Yeah, the lacrosse team. Yeah, just the blow-ins, just like the. You could have teams, the guy that you could say he'd play first grade at the pub, you know, those sorts of people. You could have a team full of people that talk about rugby league online. Imagine that team. Jesus. Well, they could be coached by Matthew Elliott. No. Why would you bring up Matthew Elliott? I was happy talking about this, and then you bring up Matthew Elliott. Uh. Fuck you. <laughs> 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 well, you know, he's... 
he's 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 online. You know, he he does a lot of work online. Does a lot of. Yeah, I don't know what he does. ABC, I think. That's right. He's an expert. He's an online expert online. Ah, jeez. So he could be an expert online expert coach for one of these teams. Yeah, he'd be expert. He did actually coach the United States at one point, I believe. He did. And he hasn't coached them anymore. So there's probably a reason behind that. Yeah. You could, I, you could probably tell me about that. <laughs> well, when I found that out, I was absolutely devastated because, you know, he's got the magic touch, Matthew Elliott, when it comes to coaching. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, let's, let's, we'll wait until we have, we'll have a Matthew Elliott episode. And oh, we'll we will. Half hours. Yeah, like, I'm rubbing my forehead right now talking about him. I can't do this right now. <laughs> that episode will just be me doing an intro for about 35 seconds and you talking for two hours. Yeah. And then I try to uh, cut you off. Yeah, about what it was like. One of the darkest periods of my life. Ugh. <laughs> so anyway, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about was the international calendar. That We're basically, the idea is that we set it up on a, a four-year cycle. And the reason we do that is I don't know. Um, so what would you, what would be your idea? Because... My ideal cycle would be a three-year cycle, but I want to hear about what you would have set up and, and the things you would have in place. I'd be looking at a uh, a two-year cycle, but I would also have the... I, I, I completely agree with your idea of a World Cup every three years. Yep. So I'd be having a two-year cycle. So one cycle would include the World Cup. The other one will be setting up for it. Yeah. Um, and that way you can have international teams and you know, they'll be able to properly prepare and organize yeah. their games. We can have venues being properly organized. Um, they can do proper promotions for their games and try and do things to get more fans across to the matches. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the moment, too much of what goes on on the international stage is, as we're seeing at the moment, a lot of it has been haphazardly put together or it's a bit, oh, okay, we'll play those guys in three months' time. And yeah, they're not yeah. giving themselves any chance whatsoever to make either the game their their national uh, side their players any better it's yeah. all very slapdash and it's um it needs to be a lot more professional in that area so i'd definitely be looking at two year windows that way it's not you're not planning too far ahead because you know any old thing can change you don't know what's going to happen in in europe and stuff like that with mm-hmm. brexit and whatnot else going on over there um so i think every two years nations should be able to commit to those pretty easily Mm-hmm. And you can then do a reassessment if, if some nations that look to have improved dramatically in that two year period, and say for example Greece makes does does really well in that two year period and they qualify for the World Cup, yeah. you can start looking at though instead of just putting them back onto the same routine that they were on prior to the World Cup, you can go right. Let's introduce them to playing games against England more often. Yeah, they're just up the road. They're not that far away, being as far as Europe's concerned, and we start to integrate them into the next tier of teams above them so that mm-hmm. we try and drag teams upwards instead of keeping them all where they are. And then yeah. you never know, they might become a regular in there and then some other nation might drop out or they might think about expanding the World Cup and then you can go, right, we're going to bring in some more teams and next thing you know, you know, for all we know, Latvia becomes a team that breaks it into the World Cup and you can drag yeah. them up, you know, and it just goes on and on like that. And I think if you've got it in two-year cycles, you're able to better... Um, manage what's going on with the with the game look at yeah. how to keep growing it how to keep improving it, and making sure you're doing the right thing by all the nations whereas um my big concern with the four-year schedule um while the obviously massive advantage of it is that everything is locked in really well so it helps with promotions a lot more 
Um, the problem is if you've got a team that's either struggling and they may fold after three years, mm. it kind of stuffs up the calendar for the other teams that are going to play against them in the fourth year or, yeah, you know. So it would put a bit more pressure on the RLIF to be more hands-on with all of those emerging nations especially, which um, obviously I'm not an insider there, so I don't know how well set up they are to, to do that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But whereas I think the two-year one would be much more manageable for everyone because they'll be able to have their finger on the pulse if they see a team that's struggling a bit, they can jump in a bit quicker. Yeah, so I think the thing I like about the idea of having a World Cup every three years is that the first thing is it it takes pressure off of having to set up uh, test matches in, in just in general because you're going to have every three years I think is enough where you're going to have that cross-pollination between international sides. You're going to have the varied varied competition. And that's something we've already talked about we need more of in rugby league. And I think that that would happen with the World Cup every three years. Um, And and so my calendar, and I've thought about this for a long time, my calendar would be, say, and I'll do it a little bit backwards, but it it will make more sense by doing it backwards. So in, in year one, you'd have the World Cup, and I would have 14 team World Cup, um, I, I wouldn't have it any bigger than that, but I would have a really um, well set out qualification process as well, so that and and that I'd, I'd put value into an emerging nations World Cup. But that would be in year three. But we'll get to that. So in year one would be the World Cup for me. Um, in year two, I would have no international competition between the major countries. My year two would be an expanded World Club Challenge competition. And it would be different to what we have now. So basically it would be, say, a a 12-team tournament, a straight knockout tournament, but you would have the best teams from each nation and and it wouldn't necessarily be the champion. So for New Zealand, you'd get the New Zealand Warriors in it every single time. Um, For France right now, it would be the Catalan Dragons. They'd qualify. Uh, For England, it would be Wigan. Because because obviously they're the the best nation the best team uh, for winning their title. But say a French team won Super League, it would say it might be the grand final losers or the the top premiership team. You know whoever got the furthest. Uh, and and you would have teams from all over the world, like you would have the the uh, PNG Hunters from the Queensland Cup. Have them all pl- play in a straight knockout competition, and you might bring in the say, the Super League teams and the NRL teams later on in the competition. But have all of these teams build into a, a World Cup, a World Club Challenge, and I'd call it the World Club Champion. I'd, I I wouldn't call it the Challenge anymore. I think that that's been tainted, that name. Um, and have them all playing a, a real World Championship knockout competition. I think that would be fantastic for year two. It would alleviate some of the workload on international players, although it would you'd have your club teams playing a couple of extra games. Um, but I think that would be a really interesting thing that you could do that would generate something for the clubs so they get something out of these quicker World Cup cycles. And it would maybe build something new that we could have to to be running on. Another thing you could do while this was all going on would be maybe have an under-20s World Cup competition played somewhere else in the world. Or you could, you know, have smaller tournaments. You might have your 
your nines tournaments going at the same time, you would have the scope to do extra things in this second year. And your third year, what I would have would be your Emerging Nations World Cup. You could have then your tours, like you might have uh, your traditional tours or, or one-off test matches or something leading into the main World Cup, which would be the following year. Um, you could have your Nines World Cup maybe at that time. It doesn't have to be the elite players and you could play it in different nations that weren't getting test series and test matches. You know, you might be playing that in the United States and, and things like that. And I just think a, a, a three-year cycle like that would tick all of the boxes so that you were getting regular test matches, you were getting something for the clubs that they could look towards and get a bit of money out of, and you're also looking to build things towards the next World Cup. And, and that's why I would have a three-year World Cup cycle. No, I like it. I think the the big thing about all of this, though, whether it's two, three, four years, whatever, is we need to get as many of these games, if not all of them, on TV. Yeah. Um, doesn't matter which TV. doesn't matter mm-hmm. whose TV rights. I don't care who gets the money. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make a huge amount of money, but it needs to be on TV because it's not going to get money if it's not being seen by anyone. Yeah. And even if it gets, you know, 200 viewers around the world for one of those emerging nations games the first time around. Who knows? Maybe by the time the third or fourth tournament's run, you've got several thousand watching it. Your sponsorship yeah. money starts to go up. Things start to improve and you can roll it on from there. But we can't be having, we can't be relying on games being streamed on the internet. Mm. Um, Cause not everyone's going to be able to access that um, around the world. And you know, as much as internet is everywhere, you know, there are a lot of people, especially the older people, who want to watch these games and may not be savvy with the internet and they want to watch it on TV. And to be honest, TV is where all the advertising money's at. You can't yeah. put an ad in the middle of a live stream on on YouTube or Facebook. So there's no there's no potential you know income to be earned from that really. That's yeah. why you need to have it on the telly. Um, and you know, so for me, that's that's the one big hurdle. Um, they need to find a way around it. I think the easiest way for Australia to, to to get around it is to just automatically include any international matches that are being played in the Southern Hemisphere, just to add it. What you know for free charge into the next TV rights deal, mm-hmm. and just say, look, we'll put all these games in there. You don't have to pay extra for them, but you have to televise them. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it's, and it's that should be the case the with right that, that Prime Minister's thirteen game against exactly. The Perfect it's example. crazy that that's not on TV. And Look at how much the Papua New Guineans love that. They, flock, yeah. they almost tip the bloody bus over as soon as they see the kangaroos turn on. Yeah. You know, it's, those are the sort of games we definitely need to have those on TV. Yeah, 100%. And the thing is, too, you, you build up, you build something up to the point where, because I think TV rights are going to change. And I wrote about this about eight years ago, I think it was now, where... Eventually, streaming, I think, will take over a lot of what we consider to be broadcasters doing. Um, You're always going to have that outlet for broadcasters because the fact is that live sport is a slam dunk and live sport is something that cannot be replaced to a certain extent. You can watch a, a lot of things online after the fact that we're broadcast on TV. But you can't do that with live sport. So live sport's always always going to be king. So when you see these things, these articles that funnily enough are put out by the same companies that broadcast live sport where they say, oh, the broadcast rights for live sport's probably going to go down. Um, 
you've got to keep in mind who's writing it and what exactly. company is, is is putting that out there. But so broadcasting for live sports always going to be there. But I also think going towards the future, a lot of sports you are seeing them set up, and the NBA has been really good at this, where they've got their own they've got their own streaming service. And I look, I subscribe to it in Australia, where I think I pay something like forty dollars a month to watch every single NBA game live. Now, I only watch really my team play and a few other games that interest me, but I'm sending that money directly to the NBA every single month. And that's something that I think the rugby league authorities need to be looking at. And their broadcasting partners are going to smash them and say, you don't need to do this. This is a waste of money. Like, what are you doing? But down the track, it's going to be the way that a lot of people watch sport because TVs are just going to have these apps built into them or you're going to be able to download them really easily. And it's going to be the new watching live sport will be through apps down the track to a certain extent. Now, it might not be the biggest events, but it might be your smaller events. It might be your your boutique setups where you might be able to pay, say, 50 bucks a month but be able to watch French rugby league club games as well as your English rugby league club games together. And it's all part of the one package. And the French part might not be the main thing that you get it for, but you've got access to it and you can watch it if you want to. And it's a similar thing to what you said. I mean, we might over in Australia be saying, look, you have the rights to the Australian international games, but you also have to broadcast the prime minister's 13 game against PNG and this, you know, this contest, but it might be the, if we set up a Pacific four nations tournament where it's, you know, Fiji, Tonga, PNG and Samoa or something like that, that is also a component of this larger thing. And we know that's not what you're really paying for, but we understand that by taking the rights for the kangaroos on board, you also will be doing this as well because this helps our game overall down the track and it helps us build sponsorship dollars for these teams which only helps australia all of this stuff down the track helps australia because the more opponents we have and the more competition we have the better it is for australia and it's just a it's almost like a snowball effect yeah it's also good for the sponsors too because instead of just advertising to their local market they're also now advertising on a global market yeah immediately it's not a delayed thing it doesn't get lost it's in there straight away and no one no advertiser is going to say no to getting a brand new market to them yeah and the thing is too when when other international nations go out there and they try and get a sponsor the first thing that sponsor is going to say is are we playing australia how many times are we playing australia how many times are we on australian tv you know so Mm -hmm. The more games that they get against Australia, the more money they get. The more money they get, the more they can put into development. The more they can develop, the better they become. And the better they become, the better it is for Australian Rugby League because we have more competitive games to play. It's uh, it's all it's all interlocking, and that needs to be remembered by the administrators. And until it's really looked at and really understood like that, we're not going to get that push from the Australian authorities to do what they need to do. To It's not for rugby league today. It's for rugby league in 20 years' time. And people kind of think of that as, as an abstract concept. 
But I remember in, I think it was 1996, where the ARL Australian team played the ARL Fiji team because it was during the Super League War. And Australia smashed Fiji. And Andrew Johns broke the world record for points. And he was like, does this actually count? He didn't really know if it counted. But that, you look back, that game leads into the World Cup and you get into the 2000 World Cup and you get, you know, players that, you know, people didn't really know from that point on, like, you know, Sivna Siva, who's this young bloke? But that leads into, you know, Radradra and, and Takiri and it all it's all related and it all feeds into each other. And if we give these nations support and sponsorship and money, we will get back so much more in return. And we need to start doing that now, not for rugby league just now, but in 20 years' time when, I mean, who would have ever thought that Tonga would be belting New Zealand, you know, in New Zealand, in a World Cup? We need to be looking ahead to the future of the game, where we want it to be, and put that groundwork in now for the international game. Agreed. And look, I think today too, in this day and age, we're starting to see a large portion of the um, Australian rugby league public are actually more excited about games that don't involve Australia. Mm, 100%. So we're now seeing people now getting so passionate about all international games that the time is now more perfect than ever to start making these moves. I mean, to be honest, that should have been made a long time ago. But right now, the climate is absolutely spot on. We need to be jumping on this. Yeah, 100%. And look, there's there's no excuses anymore. There's money in the Australian game. We've got through the Super League war. We, we, the budget is very different to what it once was. Our clubs are flushed with cash, even though they, you know, you could quadruple what you gave them and they'd still put their hands out saying that they can't afford to survive. Um it, there's no excuses anymore. I mean, it, even there's talent from other nations that, that is there to use. Um, there's a willingness to play these games from other nations. There's an ability to to distribute the the broadcasts of these nations easier than there ever has been before. There's no excuse now for international rugby league not to be varied not to be exciting, not to take risks. We, we can do it right now. And it's up to our administrators to to get on the front foot now and make it happen. Yeah, and one other great thing too is that um, having a more competitive international game means there's a fair chance that we're going to, which we've already seen in the Pacific Islands too, we're yeah. going to have a wider range of countries yeah. to draw players from yeah. to get them into the NRL, which will only help to improve the NRL product as well. And when the NRL mm-hmm. gets better... So does all the cash coming into it. I mean, yeah, we've seen we've seen for years the value of a competitive international game in the World Cup in soccer, mm-hmm. the biggest watched World Cup contest there there is known. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. That's because you don't see. You, how often do you see a, a blowout scoreline of you know nine ten nil in a soccer World Cup? You mm. may get one out of what sixty odd games every every four years or so. On. That's how close it is. Yeah. So. That's how, and people flock to it. It's a massive global event. There's Mm. no reason why rugby league can't be working towards the same goal. It may, it seems lofty at this stage, but everything that's, that helps to get to that point is achievable. Yeah. There's no reason why it can't be done. I mean, 
we're just two blokes here sitting on a sitting on our first podcast. We've already nailed pretty much everything that they could be doing right away to to get the ball rolling. It's not it's not a um, painstaking impossibility of an idea. It is very achievable. Yeah, and and I I I've always understood that you need to be able to make a business case to make this happen, and that does spike a few things here and there, but it doesn't mean it should spike everything. It it, it shouldn't stop every single thing from going ahead. And at times in the recent past with rugby league, it has. I mean, we stopped playing a World Cup for eight years, which was outrageous. Um, and, and, but looking forward, we we really don't have any excuses because we've seen its national tournaments work. We've seen that nations that aren't called Australia, England and New Zealand can draw interest. Uh, they can fill stadiums and they can perform. And the only thing that really holds these nations back is that they don't get enough games to really be able to get to that level that really only Australia plays at, where Australia at international level is the only country that you can say you're going to turn up and you're going to see them perform really well. There's only one time I can think of in my whole life where Australia turned up and they just they crapped the bed, and that was against uh, New Zealand when they lost their... Tri-Nations final for the first time and they'd lost their first series since 78. Um, outside of that, you always know that Australia is going to turn up, but you need their constant competition to really get to that level. New Zealand isn't quite there yet. England isn't there yet. Tonga isn't there yet. Fiji isn't there yet. But they will be if we give them constant competition so that they know where you've got to be to always turn up. And, and it's funny things like having players come together at, at the last minute um, to gel as a team really quickly, uh, you know, to be used to the travel demands, to be used to the demands from the media leading up to a big event. We have the State of Origin series, so we condition our players to be able to do that year after year after year. But other nations don't have that sort of um, thing that they can put a player through. So they've got to do it through internationals. And, and that's why we need to be playing more internationals against these teams. Fully agree, mate. Well said. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, if anyone can hear a noise in the background, it's my dog snoring. So I don't think there's any weird stuff going yeah, on. It's just my dog certainly snoring. was not me. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I've been, you're getting been trying to wake here, him I'm... up, but he keeps falling back asleep on me. He's obviously not a rugby league fan. Nah, nah. Either that or he's watched some rugby union recently. I don't know. Uh... That might be, or it could just be confused from watching a bit of AFL. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's maybe he would be excited by that because watching AFL is like watching a bunch of seagulls fight over a chip. So, you know, uh, that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not tired. I'm more pumped up after that. I want to go run the RLIF now. Yeah, yeah, you same here. Have, you can have a test. You can have a test. You can have a test. Let's all have tests. Yeah, look, all I need is ten million dollars a year, and I'll make this happen. Okay. Uh, and I'll make it happen for 500 grand a year. The rest will obviously go to me for administration fees and whatnot. I might get some of the, you know, rugby football league's free cars that they like to have running around. But, uh, yeah, I and think... That, it, that letterhead needs upgrading too. Yeah, you know, maybe we could spend $5 million on a new logo or something. That seems to be the rugby league way. But, uh, you know, a letterhead and a PO box, that's all, the, that's all you need to run rugby league at times. Yeah, well, I've got one of those two things, so you know, I'm halfway there. You get the leadhead yeah. sorted out. We've got this thing under control. Excellent. Fantastic. 
We've got this sorted. <laughs> so if anyone from the RLI, RLIF wants to uh, get in touch with us or perhaps anybody uh, who wants to have a chat to us about anything on the podcast, how can they get in touch with us, mate? Well, we've set up a, an email account. It's really basic, podcast at leaguefreak.com. If they email through that and they can get in touch with us, they can either give us some uh, advice on what we should do differently. They can send questions to us. We'll try and answer the best ones. Uh, anything at all that you want to get in touch with us through the podcast, do that. Or just get in touch with us through our social media channels as well. Um, we're always always available to talk to through them. Yeah, I mean, we're both up until, you know, stupid hours of the morning. Well, yeah, we're chatting, chatting at about 2am this morning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's great. Always chatting about rugby league and always up for a conversation. And, uh, yeah, so get in touch and, and don't be afraid. Absolutely. Well, let's. Uh, we might wrap up that first episode there. Sounds good. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks for uh, having me on your show, mate. <laughs> My show, please. You're <laughs> the host. Uh, You're the host of all this. Yeah, with all my hosting experience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, we'll we'll have another episode. Um, we'll tr- we'll try to do them, do them weekly at this stage, I guess, won't we? Yeah, yeah. It, we'll probably we'll aim for weekly. I would say that we will probably end up with bonus episodes here and there, depending on if something jumps out at us that we want to talk about immediately. Um, this podcast isn't going to be a rundown of the weekend scores and stuff like that. We're, we're not really aiming to do that sort of thing. We just want to generally talk about the game, the big picture of the game, and uh, talk about our love of the game as well and the history of it especially because rugby league has a really amazing history that's really colourful and I think that not too many people know some of their crazy stories in regards to that. No, that's absolutely right, man. That's one of the reasons why I love writing about it and reading and researching about it as well. So, yeah, hopefully we can cover all of that stuff over the uh, God knows how long we'll do this for, as long as as long as long we want to. We won't yeah, be beholden we'll, to public opinion. We'll do this for as long as we damn well please. Yeah, well, this isn't about what people want. Are you no. crazy? It's about <laughs> us. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we'll, um, we'll wrap this one up. We'll, we'll catch us all at our next podcast which should be out I think probably in about a week's time yeah about that excellent thank you everyone for listening in see ya bye bye